Welcome to the Falling Skies cast, the first podcast dedicated to Falling Skies on TNT, coming June 19th, 9, 8 Central. Welcome back to the Falling Skies cast. I am Jimmy and Georgia, your host, who's been here with you these first five episodes. And welcome to episode six. And with me today for the first time is my co-host for the show that will be joining us on this journey through Falling Skies, M.E. Hi. Hi. And M.E. here is not a science fiction fan for the most part. Nope. But for some reason, when we watched the pilot of the Falling Skies, she was very excited about the show. Yep. And I asked her to be part of the show, and she said that she would be, and so that's good stuff. And um, today, we had the chance to call in to two telepress conferences with the stars of Falling Skies, Noah Wiley first. Because he's cool. And then Moonblood Good. Yes. He's cool. And uh, we were unable actually to ever ask a question. We were on the line, and they, they never picked us to ask a question, so... We didn't get to do that. But most of the questions we had were asked and answered by the other panelists. And so we are going to share that bit of information there with you. Spoiler alert! Yes, it is some spoiler alert. Slight, nothing too specific. A few minor things here and there that um, Noah talked about. Mostly relationship-wise. Nothing like, oh, so-and-so died. or No, nothing like that. Just a few little things. But anyway, we are going to play that audio for you because I'm sure you'd like to hear that. And I'm glad that we were able to be a part of it just because we can share the questions and answers with all of you guys and gals out there in the, the podcast community. And I do want to thank the guys over at Media Junkyard. I asked them a few questions about this before moving forward to this episode tonight. So thanks, Chris and Rob and a couple other guys over at the Media Junkyard Facebook page. And me. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and get into the audio with Noah Wiley. Spoiler alert! Yes, yeah, spoiler alert. And uh, we'll be back after about 27 minutes or something. Ish. Well, yeah, we'll be back soon. Comes from Patrick Douglas with Great Falls Tribune. Your line is open. How you doing, Noah? Very well. How are you? Excellent. Now, my wife and I, we've been struggling with the Series V for its current run because it just has this too much soap opera drama that continues to build. What we love most about Falling Sky is it picks up right in the thick of the madness. Um, talk about that aspect of the show where we go, like I said, right to the meat of the story instead of having a season or two of build-up. Yeah, it's sort of a typical storytelling in the sense that we we don't start with everyday life going on business as usual, and then suddenly everybody's eyes turn to the heavens and say, what's that coming in towards our planet? Um, we do. We pick up six months into what has been a devastating alien invasion and, and meet our characters already in a pretty high state of disarray. Um, which is kind of exciting storytelling because it allows you the opportunity to fill in the backstory through episodic storytelling and also opens up the possibility of being able to um, to track back in time down the road if uh, it seems thematically appropriate. Well, my other question is, how involved is uh, Steven Spielberg in the production of this show? He's pretty damn involved. His fingerprints are all over it. Um, he was instrumental in helping craft the original pilot, pilot script and certainly in casting the pilot. And he came out and was on set when we were shooting the pilot, and he made lots of editorial decisions and even drew some storyboards for the reshoots on the pilot and then helped uh, craft the overreaching story arcs for the season, watched all the dailies and made 
lots of editorial suggestions all along the way and bringing those shows to their final cut. So I would say he's instrumentally involved. And our next question comes from Jay Jacobs with PopEntertainment.com. Your line is open. Nice to talk to you, Noah. And you. Um, you've been very active philanthropically about wildlife preservation, so I thought it was kind of interesting that, uh, in a way, you're doing a show about humans facing extinction. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're the new polar bears, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, do you think that maybe, I mean, I know it's not explicit to the story, but do you think maybe the ideas of the show might help people to sort of think about uh, wildlife preservation and uh, climate change and stuff like that? I don't know. I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Okay. Uh, so, in fact, I was, I was pitching story ideas with uh, the new showrunner the other night over dinner, and we were talking about you know, just literally spitballing ideas and talking about how we have to move into a new location and how we'd set up a camp and how you'd set up a refugee camp and where you would put the latrines. And we said, well, you sort of put them down by, I guess, if there's a river source. And then we thought about the contamination. Then we kind of looked at each other and thought, I guess river contamination is not really high on the list of priorities for these people <laughs> right. at the moment. Yeah, that's true. Now, if you were in the position of your character, do you think uh, what do you think you'd miss the most in the new world, and also what do you think would be the most exciting opportunity about a civilization to sort of force to start over? I'm guessing uh, a variety of diet would be the most thing. The thing I'd miss the most, and hot food. Um, but we sort of tried to pepper each episode. With with exactly that, what are the cons and disadvantages to the to the state we've been thrown into? But what are the sort of more subtle pros? Whether it's seeing a group of kids having to exercise their imaginations at play and actually relishing in the opportunity to do so, or the quality of relationships between families being that much more enriched without all the other distractions. Um, there's a sequence that comes midway through the season where a woman who's among our ranks is pregnant. Uh, is throwing a baby shower, and having been to quite a few baby showers, this was unlike any that I'd experienced, in the sense that it wasn't so much about the gifts and the swag and the stuff for the impending birth, it was really more about the spiritual aspects of bringing a new life into the world and what your responsibilities are as a parent and what we collectively, uh, what are our collective responsibilities for this new life. And and those I found very rewarding aspects to the storytelling because it allows us an opportunity to kind of pick and choose between separate the wheat and chaff from uh, what's important and what's not. And our next question comes from Mike Gincarelli from MovieMikes.com. Your line is open. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Good. How are you today? Excellent. Doing great. Um, I've been hearing a lot of talk that they're saying that uh, that Fallen Skies, it feels like so epic in uh you know, in the first pilot episode, is that they're saying that it almost feels like a film. Can you reflect on that for us? I'm sorry, Mike, there's a little static on the line. I'm having trouble hearing you. Can you, you mind saying that again? I'm sorry. I said, um, I said uh, a lot of people have been talking about how uh, the first, you know, the first two episodes of the pilot, it seems like it, it feels very much like a, a feature film. I wanted to know if you, if you can kind of reflect on that for us. Uh... Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it wasn't intended to be sandwiched together. The pilot was a standalone hour, and it's being married to the first episode, which we shot as a first episode for the season, uh, to build it into a two-hour block. Um, so it was never scripted to feel like a movie, but I think any time Mr. Spielberg's name is above the marquee, you can't help but to make a cinema comparison. And it's got a lot of rich production value. The budget on the pilot was pretty uh, extensive, 
so we had a lot of bang for our buck, and uh, uh, that wasn't necessarily the case in every episode. So I think getting a sense of what the series is going to be like comes probably more accurately from the second half, second hour than the first. Um, but yeah, it, it it's got a very cinematic feel to it. And with the show, um, you know, it's clocking in at a. Uh, at- at, at 10 episodes for the first season. I mean, do you think that the show has, like, enough time to spread its wings in uh, season one? Uh, I think, well, I had lunch with Michael Wright, who's uh, head of TNT, and we discussed this. this came to a second season, whether he would be interested in picking it up for more episodes. And his philosophy, which I tend to agree with, is that if you're writing for 10 episodes, you can really write to a focused point and make sure that all your T's have been crossed and your I's have been dotted. And if you're trying to slug it out through 15, 17, or on a network 22 to 24, you run the risk of dissipating the potency of your storytelling and falling back on sort of hackneyed cliches. Uh, and he really didn't want to do that. He really is very proud and pleased with this show and wants, um, should the second season come to pass, it to have the same kind of punch that the first season did, which I think you really only get from shooting a truncated season of 10, 12 maximum. And our next question comes from Kate Blake from multipleverses.com. Your line is open. Hi, Noah. Hello, how are you? Good. Um, one of the things that I've really enjoyed from watching the first, well, now I guess three episodes, is I really enjoy the family dynamic that's on it. I was wondering if you could talk to us a bit about how you approach trying, how you guys approach keeping your family together in this broken world. Well, dramatically, I think that was probably the theme that was most interesting to me. Um, I haven't had a lot of experience working in the science fiction genre, so that had a certain appeal. But I went into this with the confidence of knowing that the spaceships and the aliens were going to be just fine with Mr. Spielberg (laughs) designing them. And so my responsibilities really fell to making sure the human aspects of the show were as compelling as they could be. And I found that dual conflict that we set up in the pilot to be really provocative of a guy just trying to keep his family intact and alive, being given the larger responsibility of having to care for 300 veritable strangers uh, and the conflict between the two. Uh, Very interesting. Um, But that's really, I think, what's at the core of the show is once uh, the reset button on humanity has been pushed and these characters, should they survive, are going to become the next founding fathers for the next civilization, what are the best aspects of the previous civilization that you would want to retain? And what are the more uh, superfluous or esoteric ones that you wouldn't mind dropping? And uh, certainly the notion of family and the quality of human relationships comes to the fore. And that's what uh, we, I think, pretty successfully explored through the first half of the season. Okay, and i got one more thing to ask. Um, after all of your years working on ER, did you ever have to stop yourself from wanting to jump in and helping in any triage-type situations? Oh, I learned enough to know that I didn't really learn very much at all. <laughs> <laughs> and that the best thing to do is you know, be a cheerleader on the sideline and say things like, breathe. <laughs> Uh, I've been I've had the misfortune of being first on scene at a couple of different accident sites, and fortunately had to do nothing more than call 911 and a little hand holding because I don't think I could really have risen to much more than that. Oh, well, you never know. You never know. You never know. And our next question comes from Pietro Filipponi 
from the Daily Blam. Your line is open. Hey, Noah. How you doing, buddy? Good. How are you today? Another great day, right? It is a beautiful day out here in California. Where are you? I'm down in Miami. Oh, nice. <laughs> Let me ask, uh, you know, something that really, the dynamic that really uh, touched me was the difference between Tom and Weaver, uh, played by Will Patton. You know, Weaver is a character who, especially in most of these post-apocalyptic movies, you, you see the, uh, um, I would say something like Battle of Los Angeles and everything, you see the, the military persona is the one who, who steps up to the plate and becomes the default leader. Um, but with Tom, he really has no practical experience um, for military application, but his his knowledge as a professor, you know, you see it coming out in all these different situations. I mean, what do you think distinguishes Tom as a leader as opposed to what all of these other projects have that they automatically show the militaristic personalities step to the foreground to take charge? That's an interesting question. Uh, I would say that when you traditionally have a character whose career military like Captain Weaver is, their strong suit is leading men who have been trained and focused for the battle and mission at hand. Whereas in this particular scenario, most of our military has been eradicated already, and it's a civilian militia that is being trained. And it's it's exactly Tom Mason's backstory as having been a teacher that puts him in a little bit better stead to teach these mostly kids how to arm themselves and defend themselves than it is for uh, Weaver to fall back on the military paradigm. And it's sort of, it's looking at the realm of academia and saying, it's a little dry for what we need right now, and looking at the role of military and saying, that's a little dogmatic for what we re- need right now, and trying to find the synthesis between the two that I think uh, makes my character a, a leader of a different strength. That's beautiful. And um, last question for you. Tom does seem like somebody who has his act together, but I mean, I'm I'm only three episodes in. I'm trying to figure out: Are we going to see in the first season Tom's breaking point? He comes damn close to it. He comes very, very close to it. Yeah, uh, I would say episode. Yeah, in the four or five range, that's when he starts to wear a little thin. Although, you know, it's there was an adage that we used to say a lot on my other show where you really didn't have time to feel sorry for yourself during the course of the day because you had another patient to treat, or two or three. So you really had to earn whatever private moments you allowed yourself to reveal whatever inner life was going on. And the same holds true for this show, is that there's such a constant and imminent threat underneath each and every scene that these characters, who probably, if they had a week off, would develop all sorts of the hallmarks of PTSD and go through all sorts of uh, debilitating grief, don't have the luxury of doing so because there's just too many other things that need to be done. So I would say that the big breakdown is, is still coming, but we, we definitely show glimpses of, of, of it. And our next question comes from Patrick Douglas from Great Falls Tribune. Your line is open. Although if I had to compare it to another show, I'd actually uh, put it up with uh, another great series in Walking Dead, only it replaces zombies with aliens. And and obviously it's a little less violent because it's it's on TNT. I mean, with, with this post-apocalyptic type of story with the isolation, how are you as an actor able to really get into character uh, where you believe and you, trans, you translate that belief uh, 
to the audience as far as just being isolated and, and just a sense of dire every every day? Uh, I'm at a bit of a disadvantage. I haven't seen Walking Dead yet, so um, the comparisons that I've heard, I can't say whether they're well-founded or not. <clears throat> For my own uh, preparation, Nothing could be more isolating than pulling a guy away from his family and sequestering him in Toronto, Ontario, for five months. <laughs> uh, that's the tongue-in-cheek answer. The, <laughs> the straight answer is, uh, you know, we watched a lot of movies. We read a lot of books. We passed stuff around from trailer to trailer, trying to get everybody on the same page. Um, but in terms of trying to find a a level of continuity between everybody's performance so that we were all playing relatively the same stakes, but but individualizing them. Um, we talked a lot about encounters with the aliens serving as metaphors for encountering the worst aspects of our own personalities. So if you stop thinking of them as, as scary alien creatures, which would force you into the limited choices of acting like Fay Ray in a King Kong movie, and tried to personalize it a lot more, having them represent something that you really did not want to encounter at at all costs, then the level of threat is always existent, but it's very specific to character. And uh, I think we accomplished that pretty well. Thanks. And our next question comes from Eric Resnick with YouBentMyWookie.com. Hey, Noah. Thanks for taking time to talk to us all today. Oh, I forgot. I'll do it. Sorry? Hello? Yeah, still here. Can oh, you hear me? Sorry. Yep. Um, I was wondering, because you haven't done too many big action roles other than, than really the Librarian series, which was great. What did you have to do to prepare for the action involved in the show compared to previous work that you've done? Oh, I probably should have done a lot more. <laughs> I showed up, you know, we all had a couple of days of running around a soundstage and learning gun safety. But in terms of physical preparation, uh, I found myself at a disadvantage trying to keep up with Drew Roy, who's part Springbok, I'm deciding, uh, plays my oldest son, who very early on in the pilot, we had to sort of run and jump and dive and whirl and roll and do all these crazy things, all of which eventually I got more comfortable at, but it, it's certainly not wearing the white coat every day. Did you find that you were able to do a lot of your own stunts, or did, did a lot of, was a lot of it done by, by a stunt team? Kind of both. I mean... They're stunts, but they're not real stunts. I mean, uh, running and jumping and sliding and diving, all that stuff looks so much better when the actor's doing it. And so I did a lot of that kind of thing. And then whenever there was one sequence where I'm fighting one of the aliens in a steam tunnel, and uh, I did all of that fight with the exception of one throw where the alien sort of chucks me, and that required some wire work to uh, get thrown high up against a wall. So... Uh, Is that the first time you've done wire work? I didn't do that one. I, that's the one I farmed out to uh, the double. And, you know, I, I had to learn how to ride a motorcycle for this show, which I'm still kind of terrified by. Um, so I can start one, and I can stop one, and I can kind of coast through a scene on one, but anything requiring any more acrobatics than that, I give to the double as well. Things like that. We go next to Jason Hunt with SciFiForMe.com. Hey, Noah, uh, going, going back to the question of family for a moment, it seems like there's a, a good setup for some brother-related themes that are going throughout various different uh, stories there with Captain Weaver 
and the the band of brothers mentality that he has with the soldiers versus the civilians. You've got the Mason brothers and the question of what they'll do for each other in this situation. Uh, and it almost seems like Mason and Pope might have uh, beginnings of something uh, set up with that discussion there in the in the theater. Uh, is is this something that's been discussed and planned? That is it just coming out in the performances uh, as as just a natural outgrowth of the story? I think kind of uh, both. You know, not to give too non-specific an answer. Um, you know, relationships, especially when you're starting up a new show. It's a lot like testing spaghetti. You kind of throw a bunch of stuff on the wall and see what sticks. And uh, certain relationships have greater resonance than others, and certain themes become more pronounced than others. And oftentimes, they're not the ones that you have you expect to pop. Um, you know, certainly when we started, I it, it was pretty black and white that I was coming from the humanist angle and Will Patton was coming from the militarist angle, and that we were going to butt heads continually. And then as we got into the playing of it. Will brings such an interesting complexity to his character and a lot of humanity to to what could easily be perceived as a two-dimensional character um, that it became a lot more interesting to kind of explore the areas of commonality between these two characters as opposed to their areas of conflict and to see how, under different circumstances, these men actually might like each other but are forced into opposite camps because of their dueling ideologies. Uh, and the same holds true holds true with characters like Pope, um, where you know it's this notion of who your allegiance is to. Um, obviously, when you have an external threat from another planet, suddenly the divisions between black, white, rich, poor, old, and young get erased immediately against a common enemy. But if you take that enemy off the table for a moment and are allowed to take a little bit of breathing room what are the lessons we've learned, or do we revert back to our own kind of pettiness and clannishness? And so these are all themes that are worthy of exploring um, as we go on. Now it seems like your characters, you talk about breathing room, it seems like your characters are actually getting some of that, where uh, a comparison was made to V earlier. It seemed like in that series, it was really a lot of slam bang and no character development. Are, are you guys consciously aware of being able to spend time with these characters before you go into just doing action sequences? Is that something that you're, you're, you're being careful about, wanting to... You have to be careful about it even just from a production standpoint, because obviously action sequences require the most money of an episode budget. And if you're going to give a little action sequence in every show, you, you'll get a little action sequence in every show. But if you can buy yourself a couple episodes uh, by saving on your post-production budget, and focusing the drama on interpersonal and character conflict, then suddenly on the fourth episode, you've got quite a large war chest to work with, and you can you can stage something pretty epic. So there's a f financial necessity that, that uh, goes into it. Um, but also, it's much more compelling to have the threat come not as a constant, but in waves, and to have it start off as a huge wave and then be able to get a, a lull and uh, reflect a little bit and synthesize some information, then to have another wave come, and also the anticipation of that wave coming is great dramatic tension. Um, what are the lessons learned after an encounter before the next wave comes? It, I think that for this particular show, works much better than having it be uh, a constant threat. 
And our next question comes from Jeannie Jackal from San Antonio Express News. Your line is open. Hi, Noah. How are you? Good. How are you today? Good. Um, I, I'm, I don't know if you're a big fan of Jason and the Argonauts like I am, but I, I noticed that it had kind of a feel of, of Ray Harryhausen feel to the aliens here with very sort of mechanical and stop motion a little bit. Um, I wonder if that, if you know anything about that, that was intended uh, to make it look a little different from what we see today, or um, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't. I hope you're suggesting, not suggesting that art looks like that kind of claymation action sequence. No, 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 no. I, I, I don't know if you saw Jason and the Argonauts, the old one, but... Yeah, yeah, no, I saw them, yeah. It's just a very, it's, to me, it's kind of scarier. Um, I don't know if that was predetermined or not. Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't say it flippantly when I say I left the post-production to the post-production people. And, you know, my level of involvement really extended up and through the writing of the scripts and the shooting of the episodes. And then we turned it over to the real technicians to flush out this world. Um, so I had nothing, nothing to do with it, really. Well, can I ask you about uh, the target audience for this? Is is it going to be more for families, do you think? Or how edgy is it going to get? How uh, violent do you think it's going to get? Um, will it be more like Battlestar Galactica or more like maybe... It's a really fine line to walk because you don't... You know, I'll use as an example the sort of budding love story between my character and Moon Bloodman's character. You know, we tee it up that there's an initial interest between these two, and it, it starts the clock ticking in the audience's mind about when this is going to get consummated. And as we were shooting the episodes, we were always conscious of the fact that we hadn't really advanced this relationship at all. So we'd write scenes where I would be on guard duty, and she'd bring me a sandwich, and we'd start talking about whatever, and suddenly it would get a little romantic. And as we rehearsed them or talked them through, it seemed like it immediately dissipated the tension and level of credibility for the world that we were trying to establish and that we hadn't earned that moment yet. And then it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb as an obvious beat in a television show. So we cut it. And instead, we would play it out probably more closer to the way it would realistically play out, which is that, yes, there's an interest from opposite sides of the room, but these are two very busy people who have to get back to work. And as the season progressed and we finally got into the final episode, there was a moment that seemed truly earned and very kind of romantic. And I think it became incredibly satisfying to, to have it paced out that way. Um, does that answer your question at all? Um, yeah, but I was just wondering about like how edgy it was going to be, how how kind of... Oh, yeah, that was the parallel I was trying to draw. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, it's a fine line to walk because you, you want to create a world where threat is very uh, uh, present, um, but you don't want it to be so bleak that it turns off viewers who are tuning in to watch more of a drama than, than a genre show. Uh, but by the same token, there's a science fiction audience out there that I think the network would very much like to attract that is coming with the expectation that this is going to have a lot of epic battle sequences and be a fairly dark and violent show. So it's it's going back and forth between the two. It's it's having moments of humanity and hope and humor punctuated by moments of terror and action and then how we move on from there and get back to the moments of humanity, hope and humor before the next attack comes. Um, I don't think it's going to get much more gratuitously violent than episodes we've already shot. I don't think that that's in the, in the works. 
but I don't think we really want to paint a rosier picture of the world prematurely either. Thank you, Noah, and thank right, you, everyone, thanks. for participating. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye. All right. Well, that was Noah Wiley in his his uh, interviews this afternoon on the That's phone. recorded And uh, <laughs> it was pre-recorded, yes. <laughs> and so we are going to wrap up the show here. Definitely want to let you know how you can get in contact with the podcast. And uh, we'd love to have your thoughts and comments and stuff next go around. And you can do that. You can uh, find us on Twitter. We are twitter.com forward slash the falling skies. Or visit us on the web at fallingskiescast.com. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a page on there. And then you can also email us at fallingskiescast at gmail.com. All right. And so one more way you can get in contact with us, and we'd love for you to do this. You can call in, leave a voicemail. You can call in at 773-35-SKIES. And you can give us about a three-minute little voicemail about what you think about the show, what you think about our podcast, whatever you want to talk about. That'd be great. And, yeah, we hope to see you next time here on the podcast. Not that we'll actually see you. Here. Here. You'll hear us. Yeah. Most definitely. We hope for you to hear us next time on the podcast. How about that? Anyway, we're going to go away now. And we'll see you next time. I'm Jimmy Georgia. And I'm Amy. Bye. Peace. Ha, ha, ha.